Praise the Lord. Good to see you guys. Can I have you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? As we have said numerous times over the course of this study, but for the sake of those who are new this morning, we uh, are studying John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. A few weeks ago, we entered into chapter 10, into a teaching that Jesus gave which we've entitled the Good Shepherd Discourse. Now, in the course of studying this discourse, we pause to focus on something that Jesus said that is of particular interest and importance to all Christians since he has commissioned us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the lost. And I want to focus in on verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And so as we have said several times, the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that he and he alone is the door that leads to salvation. He made this very clear in chapter 14, verse 6, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's only one entrance into salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the door, as he said. But as we have said, any door that leads to anything of great value is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation is locked and requires a key to open it. What is that key? Well, it's the gospel, as we have been looking at. It's the gospel. The gospel is the salvation what a key is to a lock. However, we all know that a key, and we're reviewing from uh, last time, but we all know that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door. And the same is true with the gospel. If the gospel has been twisted, distorted, or perverted in any way, neither will it open the door of salvation. And nobody knows this better than Satan. And so the father of lies, as Jesus called him in chapter 8 of John's gospel, has worked very hard over the centuries to twist the gospel of Jesus Christ to keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. Now, this is nothing new. It started all the way back in Paul's day. We've quoted Galatians chapter 1 several times. Let me read to you verses 6 and 7 once again. Paul said, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. He went on to say in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, anathematized, cursed to the lowest hell. Obviously, this was a very important issue for Paul. He realized that if Satan twists, can twist and distort the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to people, and here's the insidious part, while all the while they believe that they have the true gospel and they are saved. There's a lot of folks who have embraced uh, a gospel that they believe is true, but a gospel that Satan has perverted, twisted, distorted, and therefore even though they believe in this gospel with all their heart, it is a false gospel, and a false gospel can't save anyone. That is why it's so important that we know the true gospel. 
and are able to share it accurately with others. And that became the basis for this little mini-series, which I'm calling the gospel, The Key to Salvation. As we study the New Testament and the various gospel presentations, most of them, of course, found in the book of Acts, they're all slightly different, but they all share the same core elements. Let me review a little bit where we have, uh, what we have looked at so far. The first one that we've already um, looked at really isn't a part of the gospel per se. In other words, it isn't an essential doctrine for salvation. It is more the introduction, the motivation to get people moving in the direction of salvation. And that is that there is a day of judgment coming. Now, this idea is sprinkled throughout Old and New Testament, but especially the New Testament, that there is a day of judgment coming. Unfortunately, in the day that we're living, many pastors have expunged that teaching completely from their teaching. The Bible has a lot to say about how Adam blew it for all of his descendants. When Adam and, of course, Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they fell. They became fallen creatures. And everyone born of Adam after him was born a fallen creature doomed to spend eternity in hell. That is the bad news. The word gospel essentially means the good news. But it's not until you really understand the bad news that makes the gospel such good news. The bad news is, of course, that we are fallen sinners doomed to spend eternity in hell, and there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to change that. The good news is that God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary's cross, that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. That is the good news. But Jesus Christ is coming again. Uh, we, we quoted uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 42, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, many other places we could look at that tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And you don't want to stand before him on that day of judgment apart from Christ. As the Bible says, it is a terrible, horrendous thing to fall into the hands of a living God apart from Christ. The wrath of God abides on all people until you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then you move from darkness to light, from condemnation into salvation, and as such, you become no, no longer a fallen, cursed descendant of Adam. You now become a child of the living God, blessings of God abiding on you for all eternity. That's the good news. And so we've looked at this. The uh, next element of the gospel, I believe, is essential doctrine for salvation. Some disagree, but I hold fast to this. And that is repentance. Repentance. There are many pastors that don't believe repentance is necessary for salvation. They say a person only needs to believe in Jesus to be saved. And of course, I believe that we must believe in Jesus to be saved. But I also believe the Bible clearly teaches that repentance is essential. The first step before believing. I have heard other pastors say that telling people they must repent before they can believe and be saved is a work. Repentance is a work. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. 
But whenever somebody tells that to me, whenever they say that to me, I always just take them to Luke 13, there's plenty of other places, uh, to listen to what the Lord Jesus said, words out of his own mouth. He said in Luke 13, starting with verse 3, he said, I tell you uh, that unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He repeats the same thing in verse 5. So twice in three verses he says that repentance is essential for salvation. If you don't repent, you won't be saved. Look, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's a word that literally means to have a change of mind. But in the New Testament, it's always connected to a change of direction, a change of action. Yes, a change of mind that leads to a, a course change in your life, a directional change in your life. Look, no one can be saved who isn't willing and wanting to have the course of their life change, listen, from rebellion against God to obedience toward God. I realize these pastors, they're trying to keep things, well, a lot of pastors have become obsessed with keeping things so positive that they don't drive anybody out of the church. Um, I, I don't believe it's my place to fill the church and to keep people coming to church. It's my place to declare the whole counsel of God. And what people want to do with that truth, if they want to run out of here and never come back, that's up to them. But a lot of times they listen and get saved, and that's what I'm supposed to be doing, preaching the whole counsel of God. But uh, I don't understand a gospel presentation that basically says to people, just believe in Jesus. You don't really have to give up anything. You don't have to make any changes. God loves you. He just wants you saved. So just believe in Jesus. And you'll be, you'll, you'll be saved and on your way to heaven. Well, but what about the fact that they're living together out of wedlock? What about the fact that, you know, uh, they're involved in all kinds of, you know, alcohol and drugs and whatever? Look, I said this before, I'll say it again. We need to have the will to change. God has the power. Repentance is all about having the will to change. Now, the Bible does say that God even works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There are times when I don't really feel like doing what God wants me to do. I don't want to go to that person who has wronged me and try to make amends. I want to feel anger and, 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 and simmer, okay, in, in my anger. But I know that's wrong. I know that's not what the Lord wants. So there are times when I've actually prayed, Lord, will you work in me both to will and to do what pleases you? But when it comes to salvation... It's a little different, all right? Anybody who wants to be saved, I have to believe the Holy Spirit is working on them to, to desire to change. I mean, isn't that the whole idea? We've lived all our lives doing our own thing, and we messed it up pretty badly. I mean, isn't it time for a change? Isn't that what salvation really is all about? I'm going the wrong way, away from God in sin. I need to turn around. Isn't that what repentance is? I understand I'm going in the wrong direction. I turn around and, and, and start coming toward God. Sure, he gives me the grace to come, and I, it gives me the grace to believe. But, but the will has got to be there. Any so-called Christianity that doesn't contain a change, which involves the cross, to me is not Christianity at all. It's a false religious system. I don't know what you call it, but God doesn't call it saving uh, faith, doesn't call it Christianity. Now that brings us to the third element of the gospel that 
we need to look at. This is new. This is where we really pick it up for today. And uh, guys, this is all basic stuff. I'm not giving you anything profound. But as Peter said, sometimes we need to put each other in remembrance of the basics. The third element of the gospel that we need to share with people is that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, Lord of all. This is an absolutely essential, critically important element of the gospel presentation. That Jesus Christ is Almighty God in human form, the great I Am. Turn to John 8. And let's review something Jesus said in verse 24. He said, Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You'll notice that the word he in verse 24 is in italics, which means it's not there in the Greek, but was added by the translators in an effort to help us, to help clarify what they believed Jesus was saying. And sometimes it does help, sometimes it doesn't. Here, it doesn't help to clarify it only serves to cloud and confuse what Jesus is really saying about himself. Here's what the Lord Jesus Christ was actually saying in verse 24. He said, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, in other words, go to hell forever, if you do not, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. One of the essential doctrines that a person must believe if uh, they're going to be forgiven of their sins and go to heaven, is that Jesus Christ is Jehovah God, or in other words, Yahweh, the great I Am. Now, Jesus called himself I Am many times. In fact, John builds his whole gospel around seven I Am statements, and we've been working our way through those statements as we've been studying his, his gospel. Jesus called himself the great I Am numerous times. Now, we know from Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, that that is the name of God. When God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people, the Hebrews, go, Moses said, well, Lord, he's going to ask me, who sent you? What is his name? I don't even know your name. God says, you tell him that I am sent you. I am. When we began John's gospel, we spent a lot of time on this key doctrine, that Jesus Christ is God Almighty, the great I Am, because John opened up his gospel with an 18-verse prologue, what the theologians call a prologue. It was an uh, introduction to his gospel. Actually, what it was was a mini-course in Christology. Christology, of course, is the biblical doctrine of Christ. And uh, we looked at that in detail. You can go online and look up uh, those teachings right at the very beginning, I think uh, parts two through seven, uh, a little section we entitled, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Taking a little thing from that game show to tell the truth. Go, go back and listen to it. All right? um, but John made it a point to present the true Christ. 
And by doing that, he wanted to tell us who this Christ is. And so he begins this incredible gospel with the words, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and he goes on. In fact, he talks about eternal life 53 times in John's gospel because he desperately, in fact, he ends his gospel by saying, Jesus did a lot of other miracles I could have written down, but I chose these that you might believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing, you might have eternal life in his name. That was John's passion. That was, that was his, his whole purpose for writing. People would get saved. But I want you to notice that the fact that Jesus is God, essential doctrine for salvation, but it goes hand in hand with another biblical truth and proclamation concerning Jesus Christ. That yes, he is the great I am, God in human form, the Lord of all. Now, when Peter is giving the gospel presentation to Cornelius and his family in Acts 10, and uh, if you've been coming for a few weeks, you realize that uh, we talked about it, how that when we studied Acts chapter 10, we looked in detail at this section where, where Cornelius basically calls for Peter to come and basically says to him, look, we want to be saved. Can you help us? That was the title of that little series I did, okay, based on Acts 10, right? But as Peter is giving the gospel to Cornelius, he says in verse 36 that God preached the good news to Israel in the New Testament times, preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's part of the gospel presentation, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. You remember in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul the apostle said that if you acknowledge and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, with all your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus is Lord. Look, We've officially entered into the Christmas season, right? Because, you know, we had Thanksgiving Thursday. Well, you know, Friday was it, okay? They, you know, and uh, people were out smashing down windows and trying to get toasters and stuff. So we, we all know it's the Christmas season has officially begun, all right? It's, it's not really Black Friday. It's Black and Blue Friday because people are, you know, I saw on, online a couple of women beating each other up for a vacuum cleaner. So it was a real blessed thing to see. But, uh, you know, so Merry Christmas. We're, we're in the Christmas season. But, uh, you know, in the Christmas season, we all love to read and quote, uh, you know, the passage out of Luke 2. Let me read it to you. Uh, of course, it was made famous by Linus uh, in that uh, Charlie Brown Christmas story. But, but here, uh, you know, in verse 8, uh, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Guys, salvation is inextricably linked to the doctrine that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as I said, this goes hand in hand with the truth that he is God. Why does it go hand in hand? Because listen, as God, he created all things. And because he is God who created all things, 
now as Lord, he has the right to control all things. That's what our Lord does. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it in a moment. But listen to me. Here's something that a lot of folks don't understand. Okay. Um, someday, every person that has ever lived is going to acknowledge and bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? Every person who has ever lived will someday confess as they bow the knee, as they come up to his presence, Jesus Christ is Lord. But only those folks who do it while they still are alive on the earth will benefit from that. Unbelievers, they're going to be resurrected to stand before Christ before they're sent to hell. And when they come up to his throne, they will acknowledge, they will bow the knee. If you wait till then, you waited too long. Today is the day of salvation, right? Turn to Philippians 2. Now, in Phil I'll read it to you at the NLT, second edition, but Paul the Apostle is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, verses 5 to 7. And um, I'll just read it to you because I want to take what he said before and, and show you why I want to go here. But um, he said, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God the Father and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess, listen, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, and I'm, I'll get into it in a second. The reason I'm focusing in on this so strongly, the reason I feel it's essential for salvation is because there's a lot of folks that believe a lot of right things about Jesus as I did as a Roman Catholic and yet are not saved. So hang on to that. But first, let's look at this idea of Lord, okay? In the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the name of God, Yahweh, okay? Yahweh, Yahweh. Uh, it's actually a verb. You realize that God chose to call himself by a verb. It means the becoming one. Uh, or the I am. Now, why did God choose a verb to call himself by? Because he wanted us to know that whatever we need, he wants to become that. And in fact, often he's the only one that can become that to us. We needed righteousness. Well, Yahweh to Sidkenu. The Lord wants to become our righteousness. Uh, we, need, uh, we need salvation more than anything else. Uh, that's what the name of Jesus means, Yehoshua or Yeshua. The Lord has become or wants to become our salvation. Whenever you see in the Old Testament word Lord with a capital L, lowercase o-r-d, that is a translation of the Hebrew word Adonai. And Adonai means master, or more specifically, the one who controls your life. Now that word, 
Adonai corresponds to the New Testament word, the Greek word kurios, also translated Lord. You see, kurios, like Adonai, is a word that refers to the one who controls your life, or in other words, the one who is your master. Now, folks, there are many gods and many lords that people serve in this world. Paul made reference to that in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 5, when he said there are many so-called gods both in heaven and on earth. He lived, of course, in a very polytheistic uh, culture. A lot of uh, the Greeks and the Romans worshipped all kinds of various gods, okay? So Paul's acknowledging that. There are many so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, but there is only one true God, and only one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can save us from our sins, right? Listen. No one can be saved who doesn't call Jesus Lord. And no one can call Jesus Lord who has not relinquished control of their life to him as their master. The problem is that many Christians use the word Lord as a name and not as a title. His name is Jesus. His title is Lord, which means the master of your life. Those who call Jesus Lord but don't submit to him and obey him as their master. Now, do we all do it perfectly all the time? No. But there's a desire there, right? I want Jesus to control my life. I want him to be my Lord. Now, I'm growing. And as you are growing. And we grow out of rebellion. We get saved. Look, you get saved at 10 o'clock Friday morning one year. 10.01, you're still the same rebellious creep. You always were, but now something has happened. The Spirit has moved in. And he begins a process of sanctification, which slowly he is taking you from rebellion and self-will to submission and Christ-centeredness, right? So you understand it's a process, okay? Um, But people that go on calling themselves Christians year in and year out, but are still in control of their lives, have no desire to let God really lead, well, as Jesus said in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, he had a whole, he always had a big crowd following him. Some of them were genuine disciples. Many of them were groupies who just followed him for the thrill. They were thrill seekers. You know, I mean, he put the Pharisees down. That was entertaining. He worked miracles. That's really entertaining. He took little bits of food and, and fed multitudes. You know, that was something you kind of wanted to be around, food uh, distribution program, you know, that kind of thing. So he had a lot. So every once in a while, he would turn to these would-be disciples and try to thin the flock, by by you know by calling them the true repentance or excuse me true commitment, and many of them couldn't handle it because they weren't in it for the commitment. They were in it for the goodies. What what he was going to do for them? So they would leave, and and that was okay with him. He wasn't into big crowds. He wanted true disciples that would follow him. So he turns to a group of his followers one day and says says to them, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you?" Then he went on to give a parable, which basically he went on to say that only those who hear my words and obey, they're they're the ones whose faith is genuine, and they are saved. But those who come to church, hear my words, 
and go out and don't plan on doing anything. Don't change at all. Don't seek to obey anything. They're fooling themselves. And their faith will not stand on the day of judgment because it wasn't real. Now, guys, as I just said a minute ago, the word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios, which means literally one who has the power, ownership, and absolute right to command. The word is used 747 times in the New Testament and is partnered or linked with another word, the Greek word doulos. Kurios, doulos. The word doulos means slave. Slave. And doesn't find any meaning without being tied to the word kurios or Lord because, listen, no one can be the slave of no one and no one can be the master of no one. The very fact when we hear the word master, it implies a slave, or the word slave implies a master. That's why they're, they go hand in hand, right? <clears throat> but I want you to understand something, because even this concept have, has been confused today. The word doulos only means one thing in the Greek, slave. It is always meant slave, and it only means slave, Okay? One of the big reasons that Christians today, not all, but many, don't seem to get it, quote-unquote, when it comes to a proper understanding of their relationship to Jesus, listen, is because they don't have a proper understanding of the word doulos. Guys, the church consists of slaves. Slaves. Who are subject to the total control of their master and king, Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't a democracy. Uh, I hate to break it to some folks. Christianity isn't a democracy. Uh, we don't get to vote on matters of faith and practice in the church. The church is a monarchy, a benevolent dictatorship, if you will. In fact, the New Testament even calls Jesus Christ despotes, where we get the word despot from. Now, don't let that throw you. That just means absolute ruler. There were evil absolute rulers, and then there is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the wonderful, perfect, righteous, loving, kind, absolute ruler, all right? But the church is a monarchy, and Christ is its sovereign Lord, Master, and King. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we live in absolute subjection to our King and Master, without which, listen, we have no right to call ourselves His people, His subjects, right? And yet again, how many people come to church, and they hear His words, but don't really follow Him, don't really obey Him? As he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I say? See, earlier in his ministry, he had laid down the true, um, the true teaching, if I could put it that way, uh, the true concept of what it means to be one of his followers, his disciples. He said, nobody can be my disciple who, who doesn't first deny themselves, take up their cross to follow me. We can't say we belong to Jesus if we're not following him, right? John 10, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life. In other words, guys, when you accepted Christ, <laughs> he is now in charge, and we follow him. He doesn't follow behind us, you know, blessing where we want, where we want to go and what we want to do in life. I can't think of a more fundamental, basic principle than this. 
this is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of New Testament theology. It's the fundamental biblical truth, and that is that once I get saved, Jesus is my master, and I am his slave. He, I'm not the master. you got some church circles where they don't put it this way, but they definitely give the idea that, you know, Jesus is your servant. You're in control if you just had enough faith. You know, the, the five principles, the ten principles of faith, you could speak your Cadillac into existence and, 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 your, and your summer home and whatever. And, you know, and, and God will have to come through. God will give it to you. He's your servant, basically. No, he's not. I'm the servant. I'm the slave. He is the master, right? That's the fundamental truth of the Christian faith. And if a person doesn't hold to that, if they somehow think that they control, that they're in charge, that they're the master, they're not saved. They are not saved. When we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our life as we have known it and lived it, in other words, as free, autonomous people, is over. Is I don't know how many preachers are preaching that to people. But when you receive Christ, the life that you have lived as a free, autonomous person is over. And now we are the slaves of Christ. Again, Jesus doesn't come alongside us to help us fulfill our dreams, bless all our desires. He takes over. And now we become instruments in his hands to bring him glory, to build his kingdom again as his slaves. Look, if Paul, Peter, the other writers of the New Testament wanted to communicate the idea that we were the servants of Christ and not the slaves, I mean, there's six or seven words in the Greek that that means servant, which is different from slave, doulos. A servant is someone who works for another. A slave is someone who is owned by another. A servant is the employee of another. A slave is the property of another. In the New Testament, it identifies Christians 150 times as the douloi of Christ. That's plural for slaves. A slave in New Testament times was bought and owned. He had no legal rights and could not refuse any of his master's commands. And they all knew this. That's why when Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you have to be my slave, they, they lived in a culture steeped in slavery. They all knew what that meant. We don't today. We don't today. A lot of Christians are ignorant to the whole slave culture. I'm glad for that. I don't want to live in a slave culture. But it doesn't help us when, we, when the Bible teaches us what it means to be a slave of Christ. In those days, uh, New Testament times, slaves were bought and owned. Uh, he had no legal rights, could not refuse any of his master's commands. He was totally dependent on his master for protection and provision and was rewarded or punished as pleased his master. Well, listen, slavery is offensive to us. We don't like it. We associate it with evil. And the translators of the New Testament knew this. And therefore, in almost every New Testament translation, they sought to soften the word doulos, slave, by translating the word with servant or bond servant instead of slave. Let me just say this to you. The word bond servant doesn't even appear in the Greek language. Okay, so... Therefore, it's a meaningless concept. 
But if you tell me, the New Testament says that I am the slave of a master who owns me and whose commands I have no choice but to obey, now I start to get it. Now I start to get it. However, if you tell me I am the servant of Christ, well, you know, in some people's minds, that could imply I'm an employee. I'm an employee. And that puts me in a negotiating position. And folks, that makes a huge difference in my understanding of my relationship with Jesus Christ. Huge difference. Night and day. Listen, all slaves back then were servants, that's true. But not all servants were slaves. Again, they did have paid employees that served people. As a slave of Christ, I am his servant, but I am not his employee. If I understand myself to be the slave of Christ, a slave who has no rights, no power, and no freedom to make my own decisions and to do my own will, guess what? That's called New Testament Christianity. However, however, if I see myself as a servant to Christ, who is my boss, it completely messes up and confuses Jesus' statement that no man can serve two masters. If master means boss, that doesn't make sense because a lot of people have more than one boss over them at work. Some work two jobs where they have two bosses. We can have numerous bosses. We can only have one master. And that's the idea. A man or woman can have numerous bosses, but no man can be the slave of two masters because you can't be owned by two people at the same time. If Jesus Christ is truly your master, you are owned exclusively by him. And as such, you give up your rights, your independence, and all autonomy to his control. In other words, you no longer and I no longer call the shots. Paul made this very clear in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. And I'll paraphrase. He said, God bought you with a high price with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you no longer belong to yourself. You are now his possession, his slave. And for the rest of your life, you must live for him and glorify him with your whole life. Can't keep anything back. We belong to him completely. I'll, t I'll go this far and say this. Success and victory and fruitfulness all depend on how much you understand this concept and how much you have given control of your life to Jesus as your Lord. Look, I I've said this before. Let me say it again as we wrap it up. The Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. Before we knew Christ, we were rebels in control of our lives. Christianity, we surrender control to Jesus who becomes our master. That's it in a nutshell. Now, the process that takes me from being self-willed and in control to being surrendered and letting Christ control my life, that sometimes takes an entire lifetime. Some of us don't want to let go so easy. 
But I'm just telling you, the sooner you let go, the sooner you surrender, the sooner you submit to his control, his leading, his authority, his will, the sooner you're going to know victory, fruitfulness. You're going to know a life that transcends anything you've ever known on this earth. It will truly be a supernatural existence. And the only one holding you back is you and me. So many of us fall into the trap that Peter fell in. Remember Acts 10? He was up on the roof uh, meditating, waiting for lunch to be prepared, fell into a trance. Remember that? And all of a sudden he sees a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven by the four corners, comes down to where he is, opens up, and he sees all these animals inside, both clean and unclean. And the Lord Jesus speaks from heaven and says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Now, for a kosher Jewish boy, that was anathema. And he blurted out, and Peter was impulsive. I'm sure he just blurted it out, okay, like a reflex. Not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean from my youth. Of course, the Lord corrected him and said, look, don't call unclean what I've cleansed. The dietary laws, Peter, they're over. Because the separation between Jew and Gentile, that's done too. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel with everyone who believes in me because I want to take Jew and Gentile make them one new man in the body of Christ. But I love Peter. Unfortunately, I relate more to Peter than to Paul, but okay, that's my deal. Um, Now, Peter went on to be a tremendous man of God. I'm just picking something out in the beginning of his walk. Um, my point is, if Jesus is truly your Lord, the one who controls your life, you can't say, not so, Lord. The only response is to fall on your face and say, Lord, what does my master say or command his servant to do today? That's how we need to begin every day. Understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. I am no longer my own. I have been bought at a price. I am now to glorify God with my body and with my spirit, which belong to him. Lord, here am I. What do you, does my servant, excuse me, what does my Savior, my Master, my Lord, have to command to his servant today? Whatever you say, Lord, by your grace I will do. Guys, the true gospel is all about telling people that they must believe in Jesus, sure, absolutely. But also that they must bow their knee in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, without which I believe no man or woman can be saved. This is the true gospel. Because the true gospel is all about rebels becoming submissive, obedient children of God. And if a person doesn't have that heart, I don't believe they're saved. So may God give us grace to understand as we share these truths with others. Come back next week. We'll finish this little mini-series on the gospel, the key to salvation. And uh, may God give grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that you have placed here for our learning. Give us grace to dig them out voraciously, to feed on them continuously, and to proclaim them and live them constantly. Father, we thank you for your great love wherewith you loved us, where we were dead in trespasses and sins, and yet you reached down, you, you saved us by sending your Son. By grace we have been saved, 
And we thank you for that, Lord. Father, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.